Listeners, welcome back to the Hosman FC podcast. I'm Nicola Volpi. On this episode, I was joined by Chris Lee of Outside Right to discuss all the current trends in terms of football travel, the fan experience at stadiums around Europe, what the future will bring, and some of Chris's favorite grounds. Quite a fun episode here. It's the second time Chris comes on. He came on back in the late 2023 to discuss his book, The Defiant History of Football Against Fascism. For anybody that hasn't listened to that, I recommend you go back. In other news on the podcast, we had Roy Cycli back on our last episode. We created a team world of players that have never been to the World Cup. If you are into hypothetical 11s, I recommend you go back and listen to that. We've also now launched our own Instagram channel, Hussman FC on Instagram. So no longer living off of the laurels of our sister podcast, Lost in Postulation, who also has their own. While there, listeners, if you haven't already, give Lost in Postulation, our flagship podcast, uh, a listen when you get the chance. All things pop culture and the mundanity of daily life. And reach out to us, if not on the Instagram, then lostinpostulation at gmail.com is always there for you. So without further ado, listeners, on to my conversation with Chris Lee. Enjoy. All right, uh, joining me today is Chris Lee, yet again, making his second cap on the Hosman FC podcast. Chris, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back on. Great to have you here. I tried to search a bit before uh, before going into recording uh, famous players with, with two caps that came out to, <laughs> I don't know if you remember him, a midfielder for Italy in the early 2000s by the name of Sergio Volpi, my namesake. Oh, no, no. Uh, Sampdoria related. midfielder, yeah. Well, there um, you go. I mean, two caps. <laughs> that's the days when um, when Sampdoria were good, right? Yeah, that's the days when Sampdoria were good, and then it's uh, you know they were even better, of course, in the in the nineties, uh, mm. making uh, winning the the last Italian team, what they call a lato provinciale, mm. outside of Rome or Turin or Milan, to uh, to win a title, uh, other mm. than and Napoli, of course, uh, in uh, in ninety one with Vialli and Mancini and uh, and all of them. How come a Genoa does, doesn't count as a counts as a provincial city? I've probably got more titles there than Rome, haven't they? Given- yeah, I, I think they they use that definition uh, very much within a within a footballing context because it still is one of the five biggest uh, cities in Italy, with of yeah. course uh, technically the the oldest club uh, in the country. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting how they choose that, but they also say the same about the Hellas Verona side that one being uh, mm. being the provinciale, etc. and uh, Although my father wouldn't agree, also about the the Fiorentina side in the sixties. Oh, fair enough. I would. Um, hopefully, it will come back to Moresi actually uh, yeah. as we go through the course of this conversation, because that is possibly my favourite ground in Italy. One of them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the famous uh, Marassi, where the players have to uh, cross the entire pitch uh, from their tunnel to uh, to go and uh, and get to their dugouts. The only one in Italy that uh, that has that. But mm-hmm. Chris, the reason I had you on today, uh, we were uh, the last time you were on, we discussed your book, The Defiant: A History of Football Against Fascism. We dove very much into into that history of football and politics uh Mm. our our listeners found that uh a very uh very refreshing a different take on things today what i wanted to have you on about is very much within your swing zone your genesis of outside right which is football Mm. travel 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this came about for me uh, last year, uh, being an AC Milan supporter, my wife being a, a Spurs supporter, went to both the home and away legs of that round of 16 tie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of there, you kind of get to see a bit the past in a way with La Scala del Calcio, San Siro as a stadium, mm. uh, and the future of football very much with, with Tottenham Hotspur Stadium very much being, it was almost like going to an NFL game uh, in mm. the US, right? In terms of the concourse, all the all the offerings you could have. We got there, you know, three hours early and we're, we're busy the whole time, right? Mm. Um, they use it for NFL as well. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, exactly. So when when NFL comes to London, and that was a big part of their deal, right? And then all the all the concerts and all that extra revenue. Um, so there is very much an ongoing, you know, uh, commercialization uh, to football at the moment. That's no secret for for any of our listeners. Um, even this weekend, I was uh, I was reading an FT article where they were talking about. Uh, State football stadiums, right? And of course, it's the FT, so so they have their focus. But never in there did it mention anything about the actual football on the pitch or uh, the the authenticity of experiences. So much of it was about how can clubs get more and more revenue um, mm. by by leveraging these uh, these stadiums and having it having them be stadiums in in Italy. They would say di proprietà, right? Not mm. owned by by the local town council, but by the club, so they can bring in even extra revenue. So this got me really thinking. You know, there is a flip side to that coin, um, mm. and I can also tell you from my experience. You know, on on the times where you try to get Champions League tickets or tickets for the upcoming Euros that top tier football starts to become less and less accessible. Uh, And this was originally the game meant to be for the masses for for the working class people, right? So first I wanted a bit your your macro take and and get a pulse on on the situation of how Mm. you see that uh, evolving and what the the after effects have been. First up, um, originally football wasn't the game of the working classes it was wrestled from from, from the, the upper classes um but yeah yeah it's become that way and and just to your point about how hard to get tickets for the euros i entered the ballot and had i have got them which i didn't by the way um i would have got spain versus italy in the first group match mm. uh, group stage which is doubly frustrating um for not having got that but um yeah i mean it's i mean football's come out a product, hasn't it? It's a global product. Um, this is why people quite often cite Italia 90 as the great last great World Cup because there was that air of mystery about it. We didn't know about, you know, Yugoslav players, <laughs> you know, when the wall came, just come down and, and stuff and suddenly that opened up and, um, we, you know, we'd learn all about geography from Panini sticker albums. It's, um, this is, that. that's a great point. In the USA 94, by that point, it was a global product, really. You know, it's in the home of Rasmataz, um, a country that's continually tried and doing relatively well now, I guess, of trying to sort of like make, create a soccer, a national soccer league within the States, which you, you'd know more about than me. But um, ultimately, yeah, since 1992 in the UK, or England, I should say, rather, the induction of the Premier League, um, I say football's becoming inaccessible. It's not inaccessible. It's just it's very expensive. <laughs> so, and you've got more likely to get a season ticket. Obviously, as a global product, it's become also a tourist attraction as well. Um, so when I first started going to top flight English football, when it was the first division back in 1986-87 season, um, at Selhurst Park, which is the home of Crystal Palace, but at the time was being used by a lesser known London team called Charlton Athletic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it was them against Southampton or against Everton who were champions or champions that season. I can't remember now, but it was 3-2. I remember that much, but it was probably, I looked back at it not so long ago and the attendance was about 10,000. Okay. <laughs> like, what would you get now for Premier League? You know, um, it'd be a lot more than that, right? Certainly. Um, even so that, I mean, that that probably cost, didn't cost very much. I mean, I was, you know, even as, I guess, be playing student rates when you're younger, about five pounds was that six seven euros even when i went to real madrid as a student um paying full adult ticket prices in in the 96 97 season i think it was like thousand pesetas to stand which was again five pounds six euros um and to sit it was about 12 euros so it, you know it was not expensive and I've, i haven't been back to bernabeu since 1997 because um Purely because I know it's very, very expensive and difficult tickets, and also I'm never going. I want to leave that memory back in the, back in the, um, you know, as it was really when the atmosphere was absolutely phenomenal. There was mm-hmm. possibly, no, I, I think I was in 103,000 crowd. I don't know if I imagine that for, uh, against Betty on a Saturday night match. In the 90s, could be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was um, pre-Galactica, but still had players like Raúl and Clarence Seedorf and much underrated um, Argentinian midfielder called Fernando Redondo. Oh, Fernando, yes. The prince. Uh, he ended up in Italy, didn't he? Yeah, he ended up at uh, at Milan uh, mm. w- once they started building the Galacticos. But the problem is he arrived basically uh, injured and then uh, really, really chronic injuries where he even uh, said no to, to his salary for an entire year because uh, he just couldn't make it. But uh, that also says a lot about the person, Fernando Redondo, I think, who mm. was uh, who is very much uh, up, up here, also a very different type of, uh, of football. Well, the great thing about the Bernabeu as well in those days, you're on the third level side watching Sabutio. <laughs> Everyone's like small, but you, as yeah. a someone who hadn't really, has only ever seen it at a ground level before, really, to see it up like that, it was, you see the goal, the game in a whole new perspective. You actually see the movement, you see the pass. I've never seen anyone pass a ball still over distance like Clarence Seydorf has, mm. uh, was able to, and Redondo as well, you know, in part of that midfield, just see the movement. And that, that imp- I think that improved me as a, as a player back then, you know. What, were you a, a Clarence Sedorf type midfielder or more a Fernando Redondo then? Uh, I wanted to be, but as a goalkeeper, but uh, you know, <laughs> every goalkeeper wants to secretly play out on pitch. So yeah. um, you do go out on pitch, but playing on the left, actually, Rui Costa was, was my inspiration, actually. Okay. Okay. Well, makes sense with your Fiorentina uh, lineage. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. But uh, yeah, so, you know, as you said, like it's, it's changed a lot in that sense. And, you also mentioned, and also an outside right, that now you start to see a bit of a, a trend, especially you know, uh, in England. You see two trends, right? You see one, which is uh, English football lovers traveling to the continent to follow mm. football, and the other one, which uh, I'd like to touch on as well, is uh, you see fans gravitating towards lower league, if not non-league football, for you know, air quotes, more authentic atmospheres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if we choose one of the, there's a wonderful little club called Dulwich Hamlet, which is in the sixth tier of English football. Um, and they had a crowd of 3,334 at the weekend. And that, if you think about that, that's going to rival third or fourth tier mm-hmm. uh, English football and some top tier. In, I mean, uh, in, if I went to a game, the Dublin's oldest derby, the other um, month, which is uh, Bohemians against Shelbourne, and that was four thousand five hundred. I think were there 
at the time that was their capacity. They probably sell more than that. But if you think about Dollar Chamlet attracting 3,300, and that's because they've got a really interesting little kind of fan culture that's very much built around, um, I guess it's kind of partly there's some poly ethos. That this, this, the, the, this, you could probably attribute some of, this, of the Dulwich Hamlet and other, other places like Clapton um, and Whitehawk, which is in Brighton, um, where these kind of non-league movements are happening. And they've, a lot of them have been inspired by the fact they've gone over to places like St. Pauli, liked what they saw, the slightly political, politicization of football support, you know, and then bought that atmosphere back in many ways. It's quite interesting thing if you look at, at the history of ultra culture. Um, it is a mixture of, um, well, I think originally, um, if anyone reads 1312 by uh, James Montague, which is an excellent book on the history of the ultra mm-hmm. movement, um, it started with Croatians or Yugoslavs, as it was in those days, who went down to Brazil for the 1950 World Cups, or Tosidas, which was the you know supporters make lots of noise uh, in Brazil, at the Maracanã, places like that, and they brought it back to Hajduk Split and places like clubs like that. And then it kind of... In the 60s and 70s, people also looked to um, Liverpool, for example, and, and, and also, you know, the noise that was going on in the COP um, and and the hooligan movement in England. The two kind of merged right. in Italy, actually, didn't they, in the 60s yeah. and 70s with um, Fossa de Leone, I think, wasn't it? The um, the, the, the Milan group that, that's kind of like often thought of as the first sort of ultra group. Right. And so you see that movement sort of as a pan-European movement anyway, uh, slightly inspired by South America, um, take root in Italy. And it's kind of like almost partly rooted in some of the hooligan scene where the hooliganism has pretty much gone, thankfully, from English football, has done right. for a very long time. Um, although there's still a, a bit of, um, you know, um, trouble, but not much. The, there's still a, a certain contingent of, of fans traveling to watch the, the English national team. That, yes, that it is pretty much an happen. element that you will see, and it's usually just with the teams that travel abroad. I've never seen – I've basically – it's quite interesting because when I was in Spain, going back to the match I was referring to earlier, um, I got you know, called a hooligan, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> they thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, no, I've never British. been in a fight. Yeah, yeah, it was just a rather negative stereotype. And then actually – I've seen one punch swung and missed in an English game ever mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. the and that was in back in 1993, uh, an FA Cup semi final, and then and that nothing ever since. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying I've never seen it in, in or around the stadium. You see a lot of like shouting and the you know banter, as like some people like to call it, which is just a silly word for being offensive. But the um, right. but nothing like violent. Whereas in, I've seen full on riots in Germany, Spain. You know, at least bat on charges. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, Italy. I've seen, you know, uh, I've seen racism at games in, in Europe and stuff like that. Certainly. So it's kind of like I haven't seen that in English football. Mm-hmm. So I would just like to demystify that bit for a start. But then Absolutely. it's come um, a long way, right? And and they did a a big job of stamping out hooliganism on the terraces. And there was also, you know, punishment to clubs for a while there, where where English clubs couldn't participate in in European yeah. encounters, right? So they they really moved that towards. If I'm thinking, you know, now I have a son and, and hopefully, you know, I, c- I can hope he's he's interested in football one day. And I think of a more family friendly atmosphere. Uh, is it is it in a curva in Italy or mm. is it taking him, you know, I don't know, to to Craven Cottage or, or whatnot in <laughs> London? Well, it's most likely going to be in London. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this I mean, everyone's read a season with Verona, um, mm. one of the, the great in my, my view, the greatest football book ever written, um, along with Ca- uh, Miracle of Castel Sangro, which is again ah, another Italy based one, yes. written around the same time actually by an American. And um, but no, seriously, the 
if I can put, I, I, I'm not excusing obviously any bad behavior of matches, um, but I'd certainly say I don't think that, especially nowadays. I, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, Italy has never Italian clubs and fans have never been banned for anything, <laughs> and, no. and it's kind of like it's like it's quite interesting because you know it's as you mentioned there, there is an underbelly there definitely, and it's quite a violent one at times. Mm. No, absolutely. And do do you you also see that though? So you mentioned Dulwich Hamlet, and I mean, <clears throat> but th- this trend isn't isn't just there, right? I mean, you can talk about Clapton. Uh, <clears throat> you talked about, you know, uh, we talked about. There's there's something going on at, at Chatham Town as well. They, <clears throat> they get crowds of, of a thousand plus. Yeah. What uh, what what is driving this? You know, and I know you're quite in with Dulwich Hamlet, and you've gone there <clears throat> and done the talk. So you've also kind of migrated away from you know a bit top tier tribal football towards what what are you seeking out in these experiences that the top tier doesn't offer you um yeah partly um my experience with Dulwich is because i lived literally one mile down the road (laughs) when when they were picking up so yeah partly it was local um i moved out of london since then but um the this couple of things obviously there's for pricing um if you're not a season ticket holder which again would be an excessive four-figure sum anyway Mm -hmm. um then, and then you have to tie yourself to a club for every fortnight, effectively every two weeks. You have to be going, don't you, to make your money worth. Right. Um, and then, of course, if you don't want to not give it up, because then you're probably very difficult to get back on the list. Um, so it's that's an expensive hobby in itself. So the chances of getting tickets to, to a top-flight English ground, usually you'd either have to wait for a League Cup match, probably an earlier round or an FA Cup match. As you saw this weekend, a lot of the stadiums were quite empty. The right. Top flight. Um, the or a women's match when they host them at those stadiums. So, for example, Stamford Bridge had a Chelsea women's match the other week. Um, so that's a good chance for you to experience a different type of you know atmosphere, but still see your team or your club effectively at home. Um, but yeah, it's very expensive. Um, like I said, the atmosphere is very subdued. Obviously, very which is in many ways a good thing that the the Taylor report, which which came out in the early nineties which was a response to the Hillsborough tragedy in 1989. Uh, those who are not familiar with it, uh, 97 now, Liverpool fans died due to a fan crush because they had barriers and things like that and ticketing was all wrong. And there's lots of things, the policing was, you know, mm. um, not up to scratch. There's lots of, there's a whole inquiry about it. I won't go into it, but ultimately they they decided all seater stadiums were way forward in England. Obviously it's different elsewhere and in the UK as well. But um, so we have all seater stadiums at top flight um, so it's all safe, and there's obviously safe standing or the, or the the potential for safe standing at places like new stadiums like Tottenham Hotspur um, for when that comes in, if that comes in. Um, I think Germany's done a really good job of leading the way on that, on safe standing. But um, the um, – so they're basically that changed the atmosphere. Obviously, if you can't stand – you know how it affects. So look at the, the Cordova, for example. Yes, you've got yeah. seats there, kind of. They're just plastic. Right. <laughs> like, like um, drilled into cement and quite often don't stay there during the course of the match. But the, um, <clears throat> the you know, standing does create a very different atmosphere to sitting. So a lot of that atmosphere kind of went. I think now that a lot of fans, obviously, due to health and safety, have to make sure their banners are, you know, fire retardant and all the right sort of uh, right. get get a sign off before they can take them in, which is why I quite like going to Friday night matches or night, any night games in, in Italy where it's probably less... I'll say less health and safety, but you know you see a lot of flares and, and right. smoke and tifo and, and things like that. A brescia is my favourite for that because it's kind of 
a stadium that's never quite been finished. It's all temporary stands. Right, pretty much. Right. And it's been like that for ages, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's kind of, um, I think that's part of the reason. So there's basically the push factor is like, oh, it's too, too expensive and the atmosphere isn't as great. And I feel there's a sense of, I'll say something, a product you've lost because a lot of the clubs are foreign owned now, pretty much all of them. I'm trying to think of which are British owned still, Brighton, West Ham. Um, I think Man United will be coming into uh, British ownership again soon. At um, least as minority, yeah. Yeah, at least minority. So, but a lot of the clubs are foreign owned and which is itself comes with controversy, as you know, um, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis our previous chat. But um, so there's that kind of like, I'm not saying it's inauthentic, but it certainly feels a bit more of a, um, less kind of a less of an experience really for the price, I suppose, and that, that's what my, that was my personal reasons for going. That partly also I'm a lapsed Queens Park Rangers supporter, so okay. I still I still think that the Championship, which is England's second tier, um, is the best league in the world in many ways because it's competitive, highly competitive. You've had previous European champions in there like Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa in recent years. So big clubs, Sheffield Wednesday, massive, you know, huge ground, Sunderland, huge ground. You know, these are clubs that have been in or out of the championship Fulham, often the yo-yo team, as we call them. Yeah. Crystal Leeds Palace, at the moment. Yeah. Leeds United, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big clubs in there. And so you get big crowds. I think it's the fifth most supported after the big Europe's, Europe's big four. I think so, therefore, more than France. Is that right? I think so. And then basically, um, the yeah, so it's it's highly competitive. You always got playoff places to play for. Usually, someone who's come down for the Premiership struggles. Um, in recent years, it's become less like that. But it used to be the case that you get these parachute payments when you come down right. division. So it's very difficult to get. You know, even with that money, it's very difficult to get back up. So some teams really struggle with that. So Charlton Athletic, which I referred to earlier, Sheffield Wednesday, they, they've just kind of Sunderland. They've all kind of plummeted into the you know, at times into the third tier. Queen's Park Rangers, another one, uh, who will be probably going down again this year. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's it's a very, it's a good league. And also it's not badly priced. I suppose you're paying about £30, so like €35, Euros, €40 Euros for a ticket, which mm-hmm. is, seems quite a lot. But, um, you know, the quality on the pitch is, is better than it would be at some certain other places. But that's kind of been one of the push factors. The pull factors, obviously, the, um, the fact that everyone has a non-league team within close radiance to them, I guess. Um, so for me, my biggest, my local nearest club is Maidstone United and that they won in the FA Cup this this week, uh, this weekend. Um, yes. So it makes a big difference when they get a lot of clubs. So that's only about like, I can get there within half an hour. Um, whereas the, you know, that saves me going into London, for example, going one hour and then having to, you know, um, cross town and find a place. And, and so, it's you know it's easier for you to support your local club, um, so that, that's kind of happened, and obviously the little cultures have come up around that. So it's no longer three men and a dog type thing. You get these like younger people and women as well going to places like Dulwich Hamlet and um, Clapton and, and feeling like inclusive spaces and less of the um, I think aggression that you you could get at a you know men's senior football match. Do you see that trend also following with spectators? going more to women's football uh, matches is, is is that growing as uh, you know in in one aspect of course i mean the football is 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 phenomenal mm. but also as a bit uh, safer spaces in a way um, as to to have that be uh, your local week to week club for example yeah i think the, the women's super league here is definitely picking up it's getting lots of lots of attention that's partly due to the success of the the national side mm-hmm. um european champions and world cup finalists and so 
um, that's definitely drawn attention. They're becoming household names at the same time. So that's definitely helped. Um, it's a different kind of experience. As you know, there's more women and children at that, at that uh, sort of right. uh, women's matches. You don't get the same... Um, <laughs> I'll go back to that word I said before, banter, which is you know the sort of exchange of verbals between fans. You don't you don't get this. There's a lot of safer space when, right. um, if that's the experience you're after. And also a lot of them, like I said, they, they play some games at Highbury or um, not Highbury. My goodness, Emirates or um, <laughs> going back a bit old school um, or Stamford Bridge. But uh, quite often um, it'll be like a, a smaller ground, so um, you know again accessible for a lot of people. And it's it's potentially also. A push factor going back to why you know potentially push factor for gravitating away from from top tier football hmm. that these clubs have lost touch with their local communities you talked about you know foreign ownership is one thing right hmm. uh but also foreign fandom i mean i remember even within the last five years having been at both anfield and and the emirates uh the emirates at times felt like a, a tourist library anfield apart from from the cop i mean and and it is cool in a way that hmm. i was there as a tourist myself and you're surrounded by people that that flew in you know that morning from from wherever from from mumbai or whatnot um but what was once a club starts to be more and more, you know, uh, a commercial entity and business, which is not as dependent anymore on whoever's coming into the gates uh, on those weekends is much more dependent on uh, on who's watching on the other side of the of the world. Uh, for example, I've never seen as many Manchester United shirts uh, day in, day out as when I lived in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So is, is this also a factor where, you you don't have that relationship with your club uh, as you would have, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago anymore. No, I think they've got a, a store in Singapore as well, haven't they, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, because do, I've spent some time there as well and also yeah. in Jakarta in Indonesia and literally every sticker on the, <laughs> on the moped that goes past in their thousands of Man United or Liverpool. The, um, you wake up at two in the morning to watch them. That's the most yeah. impressive part. Yeah, And that, that frustrates me. So when I, I remember being in Jakarta and watching staying up late to watch Spurs against Chelsea. And as you can imagine from my previous, previously disclosed affiliation, um, I really don't like Chelsea. So I'm <laughs> so really frustrated. Yeah. I see so many people supporting them. So I was like, but do you know about them? Anyway, but the, um, anyway, moving on. Um, the, I think basically with that, it, it's double-edged sword really, because obviously they need the money to do really well. And I use the example I went last April to um, to do both the Anfield and the Goodison Park stadium tours on the same day because obviously they're right up to each other. Right. Um, there's a really close connection between Liverpool and Everton, which people may not know how Liverpool only exists because of a dispute at Everton um, over you know Anfield, funnily enough. Um, and so the owner of Anfield, after Everton left, um, created Liverpool to fill it. And so he... Um, uh, and they started out wearing blue, funnily enough, at Anfield before they changed it to red. But anyway, the, um, the stadium tour is great, and it's obviously very international. And it's a very slick experience all the way through, and there was like hundreds of people on it, and you're you're kind of, you know, ushered through all these these great trophy rooms and stuff. And there's this new stand that's just been f- finished. I don't know if they've officially opened all of it yet, but they, you know they've added an extra stand, yeah. so it's like you can see across Liverpool right to the life. Of- building which is iconic and stuff and you think oh this is great <laughs> this is a world-class stadium yeah. um and i know everton are retiring goodison and goodison is the oldest purpose-built football stadium in, in england at the moment and they've got a nice new ground which again you can see 
from the top of the hill down in the Doglands um, being built, which will look will be very nice. And luckily, with the ta- even with the points destruction, hopefully Everton will survive because they've been in the league since you know the 30s or whatever. But yeah. um, anyway, the goodness and experience is very different. Should we say there was there were you know there's less people on it, but it was it was nice and personal tour. But you could see it was a very tired ground and it's ready to you know ready to go. But it's I, what I liked about it was the traditional element they see within these red brick terraced houses, um, which is very traditional working class. It's a club that's obviously rooted in its community. Do you know what I mean? It's named after its district. It's named after, you know, people probably wouldn't have heard of um, the district of Everton without the football club. You know, and obviously uh, Liverpool, partly, I mean, 60s and 70s because of the Beatles, you know, kind of really put the city on the map, but that was cemented in the 70s and 80s by the, the football club being the most successful. So these are flag bearers for the city and Everton's new ground hopefully will you know, it'd be great to have them up again, like they were in the eighties, being competing with Liverpool for titles and silverware and and, and European football. Um, because, but, but uh, you know, Goodison is is worth getting to while you still can, definitely. But yeah, I mean, the, the double-edged sword, with like I said, with that, yes, you get a lot of international tourists, and I guess it depends how partly the club's success and also how they market themselves in those those areas. It helps that red is a lucky colour in Asia, right. um, which has helped. And uh, that was a controversy in Cardiff City, who were known as the Bluebirds. Um, their owner decided to change them to red, for, and that didn't last long. Um, yeah. So, you know, the the this is where the, the, the foreign ownership thing does kind of like rub against, you know, the tradition, which people, you know, the fans ultimately make the club what it is. You can, you know, if it's an empty stadium, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't last very long, really. Um, but the worst thing about the whole tourism thing is the half and half scarf, um, which uh, <laughs> a lot of people, I mean, you see them on sale outside, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Especially when there's two big rival clubs. Um, you know, it's a lot of the tourists buy that. And, so, you know, there have been incidents where people have got a little bit of verbal um, kind of from home fans about wearing them in the home end. So there we are. That's. Um, I mean, great memento, I'm sure, for if you if you you know you're never going to go back there. But I'd I'd encourage you to pick a team and stick with it and buy just yeah. a single scarf. I had to buy a half and half scarf because I was in the home stand at Spurs Stadium last year, and it was the only bit of red I could get away with was the red half, the Milan half of the oh right, Milan. okay for for that match. So that's uh, that's the one instance where uh, where I bought mm-hmm. it. Um, and then uh, of course they they figured out quite uh, quite quickly who I was. So I had to basically keep quiet for for all ninety minutes. Quite uh, <laughs> quite suffering. Um, but you know, having having said all of that, I can imagine you know American listeners to the to the podcast um, saying you know. What are they chirping on about? You know, identity with a local club, tradition. Who cares? They would say. Mm. You know, in America, we have the franchise model. You know, Seattle Sonics move from uh, from Seattle to to Oklahoma City, become the Thunder, still sell out, go go to an NBA Finals. Why not? How do we explain why we care about this so much mm. uh, to to the American listeners, Chris? Because I could see them saying, oh, well, whatever." Yeah, and that's because I guess the ownership has been different over the years, and it depends what you're used to. There's a greater sense of ownership, I guess, here. Um, so the great example, which I'll cite, is the case of Wimbledon, um, which the FA Cup final were winners in 1988, the crazy gang, which everyone probably familiar with that story. Um, they, in the 90s, found themselves homeless um, after um, – losing their ground. I think it was sold, but then they didn't got a back. They again played at Selhurst Park, which you mentioned earlier, Crystal Palace ground for a yeah. while. Um, 
couldn't find suitable premises. They were even muted about going to Dublin and or to Belfast and creating a franchise effectively there. And obviously that was that was controversial as well. Um, and so what's where they ended up is, is a town called Milton Keynes, just like a, <laughs> a commuter town, um, yeah. about 45 minutes north of London. It's one of these villages that were suddenly turned into a new town um, as, as London expanded and people wanted to move out. And so it's it's very, it's got a reputation anyway, Milton Keynes, as this kind of, you know, 1960s, 70s kind of, um, you know, that sort of conceptual brutalist kind of like yeah. device. It's actually all right. It's got a lot of roundabouts, um, right. as we wish you guys <laughs> don't have in America. But um, the... Right. But what I would say is um, uh, the, but there was a massive controversy around that, and the, the fans of Wimbledon, obviously, which is from SW19, Southwest London, um, more famous for its tennis. It's not kind of they weren't, you know, weren't obviously David. They objected to that, and they formed their own kind of um, um, side, AFC Wimbledon, which has now suddenly gone up and are now kind of in the lower tiers of, of English football, having worked up the pyramid from the very bottom. So. Um, and I've taken MK Dons at the time. So oh, as, as Milton Keynes Don at Wimbledon, is now, the original Wimbledon is now known. So um, that was really controversial. I think a lot of people learned their lesson from that. You don't take a club and uproot it from its area. Even moving stadium is, is, is controversial in many ways. Tottenham Hotspur stayed in their same area. And there was one point in one FA Cup match I went to at Millwall in, at White Hart Lane um, where... They were building the current stadium, the new stadium, and you walked across the sort of building site effectively to get to your seat. And it was quite interesting being what is now probably like well, the center spot or something like that, looking up at this concrete bowl that's being built. And now it's there. And obviously they're staying, basically they moved right next to each other. Anfield, right. likewise, Liverpool stayed in the same building. Craven Cottage has just been expanded. And that's Craven Cottage is a wonderful ground. It's the first one, I should say, one any visitor to London should go to if you want to see a mixture of the old um, red brick, which is designed by a guy called Archibald Leach, who did a lot of the really great grounds like Ibrox in, in Glasgow and, and, and Villa Park in Birmingham. Uh, they still survive, um, but he did a lot of grounds back in the day. Um, and so, you know, there's not much of that architecture left, partly because of the Taylor report, which we mentioned earlier. But some group cups moved out altogether. So you get places like Coventry City, where I was at university when they were still at Highfield Road, which is um, which was not a great area of town, to be honest. Um, um, but it was a tight-knit, classic English-style, four-style stadium, pretty close to you on top of the, the team, effectively. Um, but they moved out of ground, uh, out, of, out of the city into a new arena, and it came, you know, became a bit... Um, it's a difficult experience because it's obviously, you know, if you're, if you're traveling to a match, um, often either you live in the city if, as a local or you get the train in or a bus in and that bus station or train station is going to be central anyway. You don't want to be in a, you know, an industrial estate, as we call them, right on the edge of town. <laughs> it's kind of soulless experience. You'd go there maybe to, to buy some DIY equipment, but you wouldn't necessarily want to go there to watch football, you know. Right. You want pubs, you want like bars and places you hang out with your friends and walk to the game. So. That, that's part of the experience. I think that's part of what we lost when you move it, you uproot a town for a, a club from its kind of natural surroundings or traditional surroundings, and you move it out of out of out of town. And that's, uh, I think, it was Michael Cox had an article in uh, in the Athletic just the, just this past week about how uh, most London clubs have actually, even though there were plans at any given point to move, you know, quite a quite a radius away from their original home, have actually stayed quite quite true to it is it um space is what it is real estate is mm. what it is. is is it just a matter of time before we start to see you know uh, stadiums moving you know outside of where the natural communities of these clubs are 
Well, that's kind of already happened in a lot of ways. Um, and London's most expensive real estate, um, possibly in Europe, um, certainly in the top 10, 20 in the world. So yeah. moving in London's hard, but all the clubs, like you said, the ones that have moved in the last 30 years seem to have stayed quite local. Millwall uh, was one of the first ones to move. They're kind of relatively close to where the old den was. I mean, you used to be able to see the old den from the new den, so to speak. So it's like the half mile or so. Um, Emirates is not far from Highbury. I'd recommend that Highbury's now, they've kept the frontage, the beautiful Art Deco. Uh, if anyone could go to Emirates, should take an extra half yeah, half hour, just, just stroll around to, up to yeah. Highbury. Like I said, White Hart Lane stayed in White Hart Lane um, for Tottenham. Uh, Chelsea, Stamford Bridge, there's some talk of a move. I don't don't know where that's at. Um, very difficult West, where they are in West West London is definitely the most expensive borough. Mm-hmm. Um, Brentford stayed kind of local. They're in Kew now. Um, Wimbledon likewise stayed in the same street, Plough Lane. They're back where they were. It was an old Greyhound Stadium, um, which they sort of built over trying to think of else. oh yeah West Ham uh, now that was a big one that really did change the atmosphere because West Ham Upton Park was a classic red brick English stadium it was very yeah. uh, the bowling ground everyone really liked it Upton Park it was known officially um, they moved to the old Olympic Stadium I'd say old Olympics only 12 oh. years old <laughs> but that gave I think that detracted a little bit because what that did was it put that athletics track between the spectator in the pitch. I know you're all used to that in Italy. Um, <laughs> don't like it. Don't like it. No, no. It's an, it, but we are not used to that here. And yeah. it's kind of, I think that definitely for the, took some getting used to for a couple of seasons. I think um, right. it seems to have, I think it's a bit more atmosphere there now, but I don't, I mean, I've been to, I've been to a West Ham game there and I just didn't like it. I just felt very detached from the, the spectacle, so to speak, I'm very far from it. Um, yeah. No, a bit it's like the Stadio Olimpico in uh, in Rome, where the the oval kind of helps a bit in terms mm. of atmosphere, but you're still you still feel far away from from the action. Well, I mean, I quite enjoyed the Olimpico because they like could have uh, make it right. Um, yeah. But did you go one- Lazio or Roma? I went Roma. I went. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when the first time I went to one of those games in Italy, actually put me off, and it was the older Stadio de Alpi, which which didn't oh, last long. Um, Juve's old ground, um, which I was at ground level effectively, and I couldn't see a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah I got the cheap seats literally. I was on, and you know, it's a shame because there's great players at that time. There's Pavel Nyedvid yeah. and um, Trezeguet, and uh, um, Edgar Davids, I think, was there as well, and so it was quite a good. Good outfit at the time. Saw Beppe Signori one step penalty actually. Oh yeah, oh, they were playing in Bologna. The Bologna, yeah. yeah. And okay. this was back in two thousand and three. Yeah, makes sense. And mm. um, good, good experience. But at the same time, I don't think I'd, I wouldn't. I'd never been a fan of these athletic tracks. No, and I mean then. You know, ironically, Juventus goes from from the cold, empty, obstructed views of the Delle Alpi to being, you know, basically the only club in Italy with its own modern stadium, uh, you know, built for for purpose in a sense and that Mm. kind of ushers in uh, also a winning cycle on the pitch. Um, You wanted to, you know, I'd I'd like to dive into what what some of your favorite uh, venues for football travel around the continent are. Um, You wanted to talk about the Marassi, so let's do that first. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, this is, again, kind of on point what we're saying about the athletics track in that the Luigi Ferrari or the Morassi is the, the district of Genoa isn't it is different to a lot of the other clubs that you'll you know the, the places you'll visit in Italy because a lot of like you said you're municipal owned so you could be somewhere like Empoli and you're just like you've got the track in the way again um, Torino again you're you're far away from the pitch right so right. 
because uh, they're multifunctional, um, which again kind of can kind of impact the atmosphere somewhat. But the um, whereas at the Morassi, you're kind of on top of of the action, right? It's very English style. I think it's like thirty-five thousand capacity or something like that. And this, the, the legroom for someone like me, who's one meter ninety point five or six foot three, to your American listeners, it's very, it's tight. It's yeah. <laughs> not comfortable. But you're only there for ninety minutes, and the atmosphere is phenomenal, especially for a night game. I mean, night games, I prefer them over over daytime anytime, um, really. But that, you know, the the ultras in in that side. I, mean, I went to Genoa against um, Lazio actually. Um, okay, but. Um, a few years ago, but like I've not been to a Samp match, but the Derby della Latina, the Lanterna, isn't Lanterna, it? Yeah. Lanterna, yeah. That's the one everyone needs to get to, the, the Lighthouse Derby, which is uh, Genoa against Samp. Yeah, certainly. <clears throat> and so so Marassi, uh, and then uh, anything else in Italy that, uh, that well, the other thing, might not know about? I think people probably do know about, um, obviously, Fiorentina, and, 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 and mm-hmm. that's a famous club. But what I like about the Artemio Franchi is that it's, along with Bologna's um, Renato Dallara, is that they have, they've got that sort of Art Deco design. They're built in that. Um, now, I've heard it's not Art Deco. It's Hart something else. Um, right, yeah. It's, it's a specific period there. Yes. Yeah. So it's like harking back to the Roman era, because I know um, it's built in the Mussolini era, which is obviously a lot of the, architecture while it's kind of looks like art deco is actually kind of calling back to this sort of roman era isn't it in right. terms of design and stuff like that so there's a lot of grandiose buildings um but there's some great stadiums that came out of that like uh, livorno i've got one and they come i've got one um that sort of like art deco frontage um bologna's is just like archways isn't it it's like um with a with a Maratona tower on it. And again, the Artemio Franco has that. And also you have the, the setting of it being on the Fiesole Hills. So you've got like, you know, you kind of, even a daytime match with the sort of medieval pageant that comes on before the match. It's just like, it's totally different. Now. And that's what I like, you know, about, apart from Florence being like the best, you know, best city in Italy. But apart from that, it's um, less so somewhere like Napoli, which was a good example, uh, a great experience to go to. But again, you've got that big track you know, yeah. distance from the pitch. So um, I'm hoping to get down the east coast of Italy next time I go. So the Bari's, uh, you know. Yeah, Lecce, Lecce, Del Mare, yeah. Yeah, all those sort of like places down to Puglia. And then, um, um, but the great thing about Italian ground hopping that I like, there's, well, there's pros and cons. One, it's accessible, so you always get tickets. Right. Remember to take your passport. You can buy them online. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but also you, you can quite often... And I did five in five days, five matches in five days. I could have done seven in seven, but the thing that frustrates me is they don't announce the fixture. They took, they'll give you the roster in terms of who's playing who, but they mm-hmm. won't tell you exactly when that is right. until what two or three weeks before. Exactly. So you might book your flight into Milan and and out of somewhere else like Rome and try to work your way down, which is what I did. And uh, it frustrated me that I could have taken in an extra game, you know, somewhere. Um, but I think I worked my way down from like Torino on the Tuesday to like um, down to, I can't remember where I was next, Brescia, um, Atalanta, and then I was down at um, Bologna and then Parma, I think, and then flew out of Rome. I think it's, so it's somewhere like that. It's like you can do five in five days, depending, right. you know, and it's like I said, it's not hard to get. Right, exactly. And then you have also the, the whole high-speed uh, rail, which makes these things very doable. You can even get from, from Milan to Rome in under three hours now in, uh, in Italy, so yeah. that's great. The Fletcher Rosso, isn't it? And you can, exactly, Fletcher you can, Rosso. Yeah. You can go, if you're doing the whole length of the country, you can hire out entire 
carriages for your office team. I thought it's like this is great. This is brilliant. And I got yeah. Wi-Fi and everything. It's, it's I really like the trains and everything. Yeah, the the high speeds, the regionals is is sometimes a bit of a, of yeah, a different, different story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then uh, moving over quickly to Spain, because you know I think mm. a lot of our listeners uh, may have been to the Camno, to the Bernabeu, maybe even to you know the new Wanda Metropolitano. Uh, of of Atletico, uh, but there's we talked a lot about Spain on our last podcast. There's a lot of you know strong regional identity to understand Spain. One needs to understand every single autonomous region. They say right. What, yeah, yeah. what are some of the uh, the most fun uh, atmospheres and best match day experiences outside of the of the big ones there? Well, I like the big ones. If you, if you go into Madrid itself, in Stay Madrid, there's a, another club that people probably do know called Rayo Vallecano. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a three-sided stadium. Um, I remember going there in the late '90s, with just as the Bucaneros, which was the ultra group, were kind of starting to get um, active, should we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was like that. Now has become a very kind of iconic sort of experience. But they don't have online tickets. I understand you have to queue. So it's old school. Um, so just be prepared for that. Check to fix your list, get early. Um, San Mames in again, talking about re- reconstruction stadiums, there that San Mames was the original um, uh, stadium in, in Spain or Iberia, I should say, that was built for um, you know for football, and they rebuilt it in exactly the same spot. So that is um, you know they generate a phenomenal uh, atmosphere there. Um, Osasuna uh, is, is renowned for its atmosphere as well in Pamplona. Um, Osasuna means health in Basque, just in case anyone's of interest. Okay, yeah. um, and so El I think it's called, is, is, is a great little venue. Um, I really like just talking to the close-knit grounds, as, um, and they're not having a great period at the moment, but Deportivo La Coruña, which was you know big around late 90s, early 2000s, they, they've got a good, good experience out there. Um, their ground's right by the sea as well, so it's quite walking just the whole town's kind of on a promontory anyway mm-hmm. um so it's very like working walking distance that's sort of big and they're very proud about their gallego or galician sort of roots they used to have a they were a great away shirt with the the national hymn down the um written yes. down the side of the stripe very iconic and i really regret not picking one up at the time i think macron made it as a the sport, the sports manufacturer um valencia mistaya is my like one of my favorite grounds ever. It's still there um, before they moved to Mustaya, which is right. kind of still eventually. Yeah. eventually it's been going since 2009, was it? Um, yeah. The It's got to be the, the steepest ground in Europe. It has to be, I think. But the it reminds me of the Bombonero a little bit, yeah. a very South American vibe to it. It's very close-knit. You'll really get a sense of altitude up there because it's really windy and cold <laughs> if you're going to a winter match to the top of the Mastaya. Um But, you know, the tour is good as well. And it's, again, walking distance from town. So this is what you want from a football experience. It looks like a car park from the outside. You know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. not, it's not great to look at, but once you're in, it's phenomenal. Um, very similar kind of – some of those old-school Spanish stadiums are still similar where you've got one covered area and then three exposed kind of um, – Outside spaces, places like uh, the Pichuan, uh, Sevilla's ground, very, again, tight-knit, uh, well worth going to. Um, different experience down the road at Betis, which is like the other Seville club, um, which is, I think, slightly bigger. It's like three-tiered, and now it's sort of very, you know, very atmospheric. But I, I prefer the Sevilla experience myself okay. um, out of those two. Then you've got other regional clubs like Cardiz, or Cadiz, as some people might call it. Um, that's worth going to. Um, experience uh, and even little ones like Hercules de la Cante which was again quite a nice little tight knit ground um, you know totally unassuming but very easy to get tickets to so there is football outside of 
the the big two. And of course, the season that we're talking here, Barca aren't even at Camp Nou. They're at um, uh, Stadio Montjuic, yeah. which uh, I went to way back when Espanyol were playing there. Uh, and again, it had that problem of the track, you know, and I think yeah. they've struggled with attendances this season, actually. Uh, I don't know if that's to do with that or, or other reasons, but um, Espanyol have got their own ground now. Um, so that was, um, which is, you know, nice and modern and stuff. I haven't yet to go there to that one. And any football travel lined up already for uh, for later this year for you, Chris? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some ground hopping in Ireland in March, which is a, another underrated league, I think. Um, Certainly. Yeah. So I'm working my way down the south and west. Um, and uh, the, the good thing about ground hopping on the island of Ireland is that it's all year round. So um, you have a, a spring and summer league, an autumn league in the League of Ireland in the, in the Republic, which goes on from March till sort of October, November time. And then uh, in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Football League or Irish League, traditionally known, goes from, follows kind of like um, the British leagues, which is kind of August, September through to April, May. So there's always, um, you know, 24-7 football basically <laughs> over there. So it's like, um, you know, I'll, I'll be doing that. So these are the smaller grounds, um, uh, but, you know, about, and then, like I said, I'm hoping to get over to Italy again. I, I used to go every year at least, um, you know, but um, since pandemic times, I have kind of took a break. But um, one of my favorite grounds actually in Italy, which I, I recommend to everyone, which uh, is Juve Stabia. Have you been there? I haven't been to to the ground, no. I mean, I know where, where it is and the incredible view uh, mm. of Vesuvius uh, from that side. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, I went to, I got the trip up to Vesuvius in the morning. And so it was like kind of lunchtime, I was up on the Vesuvius and then went straight back down, got the train down to Castellamari di Stabia and went there. And that's good. Again, just, just for little tips, it's worth researching where to get tickets because I couldn't find a, a ticket booth or anything. Okay. And it turned out you had to buy them from a local restaurant, which was like random. So it's, I missed 20 minutes of the match queuing behind Incredible. people who had made the same mistake. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, that was great. So, um, yeah, I mean, this beautiful setting, really. It's an amazing setting. Great, Chris. Well, thanks for uh, stopping by again. Listeners, that was my conversation with Chris Lee. I look forward to having him on the podcast again in the future. Next episode's dropping. There will be a special one about a football club for refugees in Milan in Italy so doing a deep dive on that then we're going to have Roy Cycli back on the podcast uh, to, to do some fun things and we've got a few other special guests lined up for this early 2024 so I hope you're enjoying the content as usual write to me lostinpostulation at gmail.com uh, with any suggestions comments uh, hopes for the future you may have we love to hear from you we're also going to start being much more active uh, on our instagram providing content there as well listeners thank you and until next time